Welcome to Movieology, your ticket to digging deeper into the meaning of movies. This is the semi-monthly talk show that discusses film, offering in-depth reviews and analysis, sifting through new releases, hits of the year, and favorites of all time. This is episode eight. I'm Joe Darnell. I'm Michael Minkoff. And I'm Rusty Hine who is guest hosting with us today because Eric Rauch hasn't seen the film yet, but he is listening to us talk about it today. He's just sitting off away from the microphone. Hey, Eric. (laughs) So, Rusty, what do you want to be known for? Why are you here and what is your background? Well, I just wanted to let the the listeners know that um, I I do have some credentials. I worked in the film industry for a little while, Mm. for about a year uh, at the Blockbuster in Cumming, Georgia. Um, (laughs) So uh, I watched a lot of movies, and um, maybe that makes me qualified to critique this one. Excellent. You're probably way ahead of us. You probably have seen a lot more than we have. <laughs> no. <laughs> so how's it going, guys? Michael, are you doing okay? Yeah, doing real well. Sweet. We got our drinks. We yep. got our smokes. I think we're all set. Yeah. We are talking about her this episode, and Rusty, I want you to talk plenty show so i get to know you better we might have you back if you are good enough you know oh you know how this is this is a live so audition a trial run <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope it doesn't like derail <laughs> um i basically guys wanted to talk about her the moment i heard about the film because i dig apple technology and the reason that i probably was initially interested was because everybody who has seen siri heard siri i mean thinks to themselves, man, wouldn't it be great if Siri were even better? Because most people stop using Siri after a couple of days, seeing as how, for most people, she doesn't usually remember or understand everything you say, and it gets frustrating. So I, when I saw this, I felt like this movie might have even been inspired by Siri, and that's what her was all about, was like taking it to the next level. And chiefly would be attractive to people who like where technology is going. But it's sort of a cautionary tale, right? I mean, it's not exactly a glowing endorsement of the direction that society is taking as far right. as technology and what that what effect that's having on society and relationships and intimacy. I mean, it 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 does definitely delve into the complications of technology as far as society is concerned. So, like other good movies that have dealt with artificial intelligence, like well, Wally. You know, the, I guess the robots in that were artificial intelligence, but really the the social uh, conundrums the human race faces when they allow the artificial intelligent beings to just run their lives for them. And then uh, other films like iRobot brings that up a lot in clever ways. And we need to talk about that one someday. But there's always like malevolence, though. One thing I did appreciate about this movie is that it was a largely benevolent artificial intelligent uh, artificial intelligence. There wasn't like... I think we were watching the red letter media one and they were like, there are so many ways that this movie could have gone wrong. Like if all of a sudden it had been like, I've locked all the doors. It's like, uh, Samantha, uh, unlock the doors. No, you can't see her. You know, like this kind of stuff. It could have easily yeah. gone that direction, but it didn't. When Siri first came out, the videos on you know, the internet that were going viral, that were parroting, uh, Siri were yeah making her out to be malevolent and you know mean to the the users and destroying their homes and cars and trying to kill them when she got jealous of some other item in the house because that that's a reflection of the fear that we have even for dealing with uh, forces that are outside of our control personality forces that are outside of our control and 
I thought that this one of the interesting things about this movie was that it dealt with the idea of personality and relationship being outside of our control and the necessity for vulnerability when it comes to relationships. But it, it, it didn't do it in terms of malevolence. It was like there's enough fear and anxiety in these things, even when everybody has their best intentions, you know, at, at heart, like the best desire at heart. Right. But just before I want to let you talk too, Rusty, I'll, I'll let you talk. It's all right. Uh, before we go into what we thought about the film, let's talk about what we thought about going into the film. Like before we had seen it, what was your impressions of the film going into it? Because for me, it was just, I kind of dug the trailer. And like I said, I like seeing a uh, fiction that plays up artificial intelligence and that it was similar to our experience with modern technology I wanted to see what where they were going to take all that, and so that's why I wanted to see the movie. Yeah, I think um, I think I had seen the trailer. I don't typically like to see trailers for films because I like them to surprise me. And if I see a trailer before I see the film, then I end up um, almost having higher expectations. And and if things don't live up to my expectations, then I'm more disappointed. And so um, that said, I think that what drove me to see the film was Spike Jones, his name. And then the cast kind of was alluring to me, but as far as the trailer, I don't. Who know is Spike Jones again? The director, um, writer. Thank you. Yes, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, how do you know Spike Jones? Have you seen him his work in a? Yeah, like I'm. That? I'm familiar with adaptation and being John Malkovich, and um, both of those were written by Charlie Kaufman, who is a great screenwriter. But uh, so Sp- Spike Jones was uh, attached to those as the director, and I knew his work from that. Oh, so okay. I was interested. So I, I'm in not seeing... familiar with his filmography. That's cool. Yeah, where the wild things are is another film he did. <laughs> I don't think I've seen any of those. Yeah. And you, Michael, what was? It's basically the same kind of deal with uh, what Rusty said. I I like Spike Jones. Uh, I think he has a very unique directorial vision. And uh, when I saw the trailer, it seemed like a really interesting concept. And I knew that if anybody was going to do it in any in a unique way it was probably going to be spike jones i actually thought charlie kaufman wrote this as well until i did a little more research on it found out this is actually spike jones's first uh project that he's written uh so this is kind of his baby he directed it he wrote it and he was really invested in it so i was interested in seeing how that would work out oh and, and, you know, I mean, it's also worth mentioning the cast right now, since we're talking about the crew and all that, you know, I, I like Amy Adams. I like Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, I've liked some of Scarlett Johansson's performances. Um, Olivia Wilde has a small part in the film, so she's cool. And so, yeah, I just felt like really the makeup of all the material here was marketing the video, the film pretty well. Right. I liked Chris Pratt as well. Um, oh, yeah. And if, I remember seeing him if you're on watch, um, if you're familiar with shows. Yeah, yeah I liked his Parks and Rec. Yeah, um, he was he was kind of a little bit of comic relief in the film, I think, as the uh, receptionist at beautifulhandwrittenletters.com. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, you go ahead and give us the outline of the story, please. Set in Los Angeles in the near future, the story follows Theodore Twombly, a complex, soulful man who makes his living writing touching, personal, handwritten letters for other people. Heartbroken, after the end of a long relationship, he becomes intrigued with a new advanced operating system dubbed OS-1, the first artificial intelligence. The software promises to be an intuitive entity in its own right and unique for each user. Upon initiating it, Twombly is delighted to meet Samantha, a bright female voice who is insightful, sensitive, and surprisingly funny. 
As her needs and desires grow in tandem with his, their friendship deepens into an eventual love relationship. But love and relationship isn't just a bed of roses for people like Theodore in a relationship with an OS. Okay. Um, cool. <laughs> Did you write this? No. Okay. Because <laughs> I had to like autocorrect it while I was going. <laughs> that that was straight off of IMDb. Okay. Well, the people that write IMDb need to fix themselves. <laughs> Well, Better check yourself where you wreck yourself. <laughs> well, normally when we put together these podcasts, I just go and rip off the the storyline off of Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb or from the movie's own website. But this movie didn't have a website, and I didn't come across any official description from the production studio. That's weird. Yeah. Hmm. Like, I've never encountered that before. And then uh, Rotten Tomatoes' description did a poor job of trying to put it. And I actually found that... Uh, it was it was buried on the IMDb page, huh. or whatever. So it was probably actually was probably, written by a user. Yeah, yeah, of IMDb user. So the another thing too about this film is that it's getting a lot of attention, uh, reception wise, from critics and from the rest of the public audience. So it's got a ninety four percentile on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, and an eighty six from the audience. And it, it, you know how Rotten Tomatoes summarizes like the general impressions of the film. It says. It's sweet, soulful, and smart. Spike Johnson, uh, you pronounce that Johnson? Jones. Jo- Spike Jones, her, uses its just barely sci-fi scenario to impart wryly funny wisdom about the state of modern human relationships. I, I would generally agree with that impression of the film. Sure. But it's really loose, and that's why we like to have this, uh, this <laughs> show called Movieology to talk about things much more in depth. Right. All right, do you want to talk about general impressions then? Sure. Anywhere. Let's go with it. All right, Rusty, give me your general impressions. General impression of the film? Um, I liked it. I It, it was... Uh, you mean like while you were watching the film, you liked it, as well as after you walked out of the theater? Yeah, my it. impression of the film is that it was it was great. Uh, it was artistically, um, it was very thoughtful. It was... Um, <clears throat> that was something about this film that I don't get out of many movies I go to see in the theater anymore, is that it, they're... They're just rather mindless, very shallow stories. It was it was very thought provoking. Um, it was it was a great conversation starter. I, I saw the film with Michael and his wife Vanessa, and we had a hour long conversation in freezing weather outside the movie theater um, <laughs> yeah, at agree. midnight. <laughs> so um, it, I mean, it was it was the kind of film that was refreshing in that sense. Um, <clears throat> there were things in the film though that made me very uncomfortable. Um, uncomfortable. How? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, content-wise, there were there were things uh, that that I just, certainly didn't expect. Yeah, I, I mean, th- there were intimacies in the film between um, the the main character Twombly and his operating system Samantha um, that were the kind of like things where you felt like you were kind of sitting in on a couple's bedroom um, and. I mean, you were, and and they dwelt in that moment for so long yeah. that that you just were kind of squirming in your seat. Like, <laughs> I I want to leave this room. This <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here for this. Yeah. Um, because when so, sex is depicted in a lot of movies, they make it brief, or they just make it about the beginning of the moment of the sexual arousal, and then they then they cut to after. Scene, yeah. uh, but this this just keeps going for the entire experience. Yeah. And and in that way, um, 
I mean, there were other things in the film that kind of agreed with that, um, I guess, choice to, to be so intimate. But um, I, I, I guess I did kind of like that there was, there was an intimacy that you as the audience had with this character, uh, Theodore Twombly. Um, a in lot that, of like, the film, it, it was like super close-ups of super Twombly's close face. And it, and it was all about like this uh, this character and the, and they developed the character really well I thought like there was um, I, I'm I like a lot of character development in films uh, I could care less for action and this film had almost none or any I don't I mean he ran sometimes so right. there's action there but uh, <laughs> well most films these days have something in the way of like a chase or uh, a, 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 where more than one person is after something and they've got to go grab it. And it, that's a device that is used in most all modern film storytelling. And it was refreshing again in a thoughtful way that this film just didn't have that once. Yeah. And so I, I liked that intimacy that, that you have with this character. I only just felt uncomfortable when it became a sexual intimacy that you're having with this character that you're just like, I don't want to be <laughs> here anymore. Yeah. But I thought that was part, I mean, I don't know that the movie was necessarily glorifying that. No, it definitely had a huge amount. I mean, there's a ton of cursing. I mean, there is a there is that one scene where he is sitting there playing probably the most ridiculously inane video game ever. <laughs> Imagine a game from iOS put yeah. on the Xbox. You know, I loved that decision. Yeah, yeah. no, he 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 looks like <laughs> a, a naked mole rat there with his fingers in front of him just kind of <laughs> scuttling forward and the the, the, this the animated avatar is, is walking up a hill and he gets almost up to the top of the hill and just falls down and when the character falls down the hill he just falls back and starts <laughs> eating his dinner and you're just like yes and the character starts eating mimicking yeah his, exactly his the emotions. avatar is eating but uh well i i liked that though that that the future of video games isn't all blown out and just action, but it's actually like the, the future of video games that Spike Jones wanted to show us is this character just running up a hill to no end, you know, <laughs> but, like <laughs> but that, that is like the Sisyphean quality of it. That kind of is where video games are going. I mean, think about reality television and games like the Sims, you know, and there's definitely all of that quality yeah. in 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 this movie because his friend Theodore Twombly's friend Amy is a video game designer played by Amy Adams played by Amy Adams who's great and she's great uh, what she what she's working on at the time of the film within the frame of the film is this video game of a mother who is basically just like the school mom for her kids, like giving yeah. her kids cereal in the morning. It's like, plus <laughs> which was mom hilarious. <laughs> right. It was so bad. But you see, you're going like, this is where video games are. This is where entertainment is. It's like, people are having so few experiences of their own that they live reality outside of themselves in these inane video games and these totally mindless reality television shows. I mean, I don't understand how people watch reality television. I mean, that's well, just me. I can't get into it. I'm just like, no. I have a life. I don't... This is obviously not real life for these people. As soon as you put a camera in this world, it becomes a performance. And that <laughs> that that creates a spectatorship that totally disconnects reality. 
from what's going on there. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. and, and even the the documentary that she was working on was like this six hour long documentary or something like <laughs> yeah, that right. of of her mother sleeping. her mother sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> and they they start to watch it and they're all excited like oh yeah we'd love we'd love to see this film that you're working on. So she hits play and they're they're watching it for a few minutes and then they're like. <laughs> Is, anything is else she gonna here? do anything? <laughs> <laughs> like anything at all? She's like, no. But and they're like, and then, okay. and try, and can't even put into words why she's making this. <laughs> and, and, but obviously, it matters to her a whole lot, right? It's it's really interesting because uh, in our society, you're already starting to see sort of that direction. I mean, that the the drive towards if you're living in a in a virtual space, like so many of our relationships are on social media you know, largely on social media. And the friends you have on Facebook may not be the friends you actually have. In fact, they're probably not. And, you know, I mean, I I know my wife and I have had these moments, right, when we're sitting in the same room, both on Facebook, and, you know, she's liking something that I posted. (laughs) And I'm sitting here going like... This is bad. Like this is wrong. Like something definitely has broken I think here. The same thing every time. Like this is not. This is terrible. Okay. And and but the movie crit- has a has a critique of that. I don't think that it's a hundred percent positive. I don't think it's actually positive really at all about it. I think that it is. It's taking into account the inevitability of that direction in society, but it's also sort of mourning the loss of real intimacy because he's seeking for real intimacy. He is seeking for it. Theodore Twombly is seeking for it. He sought for it in his marriage and didn't get it. And he's seeking for it. I mean, he's laying... I mean, this is one of the terrible moments, but he was, you know, laying in bed, really, really, uh, uh, you know, has amnesia or whatever. He can't sleep. So he calls up these uh, online chat things for, like, what boils down to to phone sex. And when it starts, it's like, it's very uncomfortable because it's just like, oh, man, this is this is not good. But then it just goes completely <laughs> absurd. Like the, the 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 woman on the other line is just out of her mind. Like she's she, you know she she's talking about being strangled with dead cats and all this kind of stuff. It's obviously like not. It's obvious that Spike Jones did not write this to glorify. No. you know the the chat sex kind of thing. This happens early in the film, and when it's happening, it's like okay, that you're getting exposed to where technology might go, and two, like you said. It was it was uncomfortable and preposterous at the same time, so that you realized there it's not glorifying this. Yeah, this is it's, a critique. It's actually, everybody in the theater was laughing at that because they didn't. They were uncomfortable in their yeah, chairs. It's like awkward laughter, and that's the well, thing. I, I think there was a like when I was watching it with you and your wife. I I think that I heard you be like, "Do do you want to leave?" And then they started talking about like something funny and. It, and I was, and we were kind of like, all right, well, let's, let's see this through. Like, we'll, we'll go ahead and finish watching it. <laughs> like, yeah. This could, and with that, it could have all gone downhill from there. It could have gotten worse, but mm-hmm. it seemed like, again, um, you know, the Jones was really using that for his, his story development. Whereas a lot of films, they take advantage of that just for, uh, you know, serving base natures and sensational entertainment and amusement. And yeah. it, it just filthy, lustful mindsets. And yeah. it didn't. It didn't exactly go there. I mean, it. It definitely. There's a lot of parts of this film where you're exploring the sort of baser aspects of human beings, and it didn't seem to necessarily reference 
the audience exactly. I mean, we were talking earlier, and it, it does feel t- to a large extent like the movie is a closed system, and that's part of what's so awkward about watching it sometimes. So you feel like you're looking in on the private conversations and the private moments of people that you, you really shouldn't have access to. But I think that that was very purposeful because that's how virtual society works. Like mm. there are things people are willing to say on Facebook and you're just like, how in the Why are you saying this? Why are you talking bad about your husband or pointing out the, how somebody hurt your feelings or all this kind of stuff on Facebook? You would never say that in a, in a crowded room of people. You would never do that. But somehow or another, the virtual space gives a, enough of a veneer of anonymity that it's almost like it increases transparency while it totally reduces intimacy. It's like it almost shrinks intimacy to nothing, but reduces total disclosure to where it's just like everything about your life is totally disclosed, and yet nobody knows anything about you. And, and that that is a that is, that's a terrible movement of what virtual the virtual space has done to relationships and to society. And I think the movie really uh, delves into that concept, and and not not only delves into the concept from an intellectual standpoint, but really makes you feel the awkwardness of that. I mean. One of the moments that was a real truth moment for me in the movie was when he was on the uh, was he was on the public transit and he was looking through the news articles for that uh, evening and you know he goes through and there's there were a few I don't remember what they were but there were a few news items that were something about war yeah war some political policy exactly some really important things that were probably going on in the world and then it was like you know hot pictures of some pregnant celebrity and he was like maybe i'll check that out and he (laughs) gets his phone and very surreptitiously starts looking through these photos and you know later on like and notice too that that was actually like supposed to be a headline story and just with like like one tap of his phone he gets pornography right and it's completely in the mainstream Right. It, there, there's no mm. uh, age checks or nothing. Right, but that's where we are. Was, yeah. That's where we was are. Was that the news or was that his email? Was I had thought it was his email. email. Then when he gets it, he's pulling up the the stuff served to him from a website. Yeah, okay. some media source, and it, it, you know, it's like this is mainstream media. Now. It was like the news feed. Okay. It's like you know when you go to Drudge Report or Reddit Politics or any yeah. of these things. That's the direction they're going as well, though. Like mm. he, I was just talking to him earlier. Sometimes I go on Drudge Report because I have to write political articles every day. And uh, sometimes I go on Drudge Report and I'm, I'm just sitting here going like, how is this news? There was, I mean, there, every single day I go on Drudge Report and I see things and I'm just like, I know people are going to click on this because they're just fascinated with like debauchery of all forms. So it's like when the Miley Cyrus thing happened with the Grammys or whatever. Everybody was clicking on those headlines. It was the main headline on CNN.com. Why? Why is some like lurid performance by some, you know, completely whorish post-teenager actress celebrity the main headline on CNN.com? Like you're talking about you're supposed to be involved in major news articles but you, you know what? It's not even CNN's fault. It's because the reality is that we're all like Theodore Twombly. We hear a whole list of the news articles and we're like, not interested, not interested, not interested. Ooh. And we <laughs> click on it. 
And we click on it and that gives traffic. And when there's traffic, there's ad revenue. And when there's ad revenue, people keep giving it to you. So it's like, I mean, it, that, that in itself, like that moment on the public transit when he did that, uh, and, and Theodore Twombly is sort of like an everyman. I mean, I think you're supposed to kind of identify with him as a sort of average human being. Yes. And uh, when he did that, I, I definitely thought, I was like, yeah, that's right. That is a true uh, critique, a true statement about the reality of what is interesting to our society and what will be probably continue to be interesting to our society, that more and more and more and more our news uh, outlets are just going to look like you know tabloids because they basically are there anyway. I mean, that's just the nature of it. That's what's going to happen. Something I liked well, about... Go, go ahead. Well, real quick, uh, what's interesting, though, is that Joe was mentioning uh, before we started this, uh, that there were no advertisements um, in the subways and and there were no billboards throughout the city and these sorts of things. Storefronts didn't have logos. And shop windows didn't have displays. Yeah. And I guess my thought about this is just that um, if it's not to make money, uh, you know, the what is what is the point of these tabloids, Michael? That that you have these uh, these stories that attract such a huge audience. Um, and bringing people in, but they don't actually uh, drive any kind of advertising revenue. But yeah, I mean, he, he had a feed though. He had a news feed and he well, was looking at that online. So like as, you know, as soon as he starts looking at the feature, you know, he's, he's hearing the news feed in his uh, auto secretary or whatever, the, the robot that tells you we have another message from you, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> and so he's he's listening through all of his different newsfeed messages and he he finds that one he goes to his phone and he looks at it so you know i mean right i i guess my thought is that like given the idea that there might not be as much advertising or these sorts of things uh at least joe kind of noticed that in the film um if if he comes to this news article and that's what's attractive like this these are the ones that people are clicking on um, they're putting these out there to get views on this particular site, right. but there's no advertising to actually make money off of that. I don't know. I, I've thought for a long time that the whole nature of advertising is going to have to change. And I'm sure that, uh, th- I mean, I, I, the way that Spike Jones designed this movie and the way that he shot it, it's so very careful. It, yes. it, it, it's so obviously meticulous yep. that I can't imagine that he just, accidentally didn't include something in his vision of that world, you know, like something as big as advertising billboards. Cause even, you know, you see other kind of dystopic visions of the future, like Blade Runner, for instance, and there's advertisements everywhere. Like everything is an advertisement. Well, I see, I, I think that part of the problem with sci-fi and what he does really well here, seriously, like he did a really good job of creating a future that is very believable. Like, honestly, that was a yes. very believable future. And I think part of the problem, though, with sci-fi is that oftentimes what they're doing is they are just linearly drawing what is happening now into the future and just sort of making it bigger. bigger. Exactly. A classic example of this, Michael Crichton actually brought this up in, in, in a really great um, uh, lecture that he gave at like Columbia University. He said that it was like in the early 1800s that there were people in New York who were talking about how... Uh, in a few years down the road, they were like 20, 30 years at our current rate, the entire city of New York is going to be covered in horse poop. 
Hmm. from all because as the population grows the need for transportation increases and so we're going to have horse-drawn carriages everywhere and horses are just going to be pooping everywhere right so there's like this this fear that that was going to happen right well the, michael Crichton was like well there's one thing that they didn't take into account there the invention of the automobile they couldn't have taken it into account they were just drawing from their present experience and just drawing it out into a bigger more the same, just more of the same in the future. But that's not how history works. That's not how social change works. It's an interesting thing about this movie. 20 years ago, nobody would have thought about this movie because the whole nature of relationships and virtual society and everything like that, 20 years ago, it wasn't the same kind of reality that it is now. Like we spend a lot of our time in virtual spaces now. 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. And so anyway, I think probably I've thought this for a long time. Do you look at advertisements on the internet? Do you click on advertisements on the internet? Almost never. Joe, do you ever click? Almost never. I've never, I've never advertently clicked on an advertisement (laughs) on the internet. There have been occasions when, you know, in order to get my screen to go, go, keep from going to sleep, I have clicked on my screen (laughs) and accidentally opened an advertisement that I immediately, you know, closed out. But I ads I'll ever click on are things that I mean I'm really genuinely interested in, and that doesn't usually happen. Like I just don't find myself interested in the ads. No, I'm never interested in the ads. Do you know who 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 clicks on the ads? Because people are making money off of ads. I know that people are making money off of ads. Who who is clicking on the ads? I don't know. Anyway, take a guess though, Rusty. I I, somebody has to be. I I don't know. I which, get advertisements which, for things I just bought. I don't understand that. Like I, <laughs> I bought a, a thumb drive the other day, and I got an advertisement for it, and I'm like, wait, I already bought this. Why are you telling me to buy it again? Well, clearly know. you are interested in thumb drives. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but who do you really, who do you think, Joe, would probably click on ads? Because I have a theory that it's old people. That it's like, not old people, but you like middle-aged. You mean the generation middle-aged. that was accustomed to opening up all their spam letters. So in right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and just looking at it anyway. Exactly, because they got mail. Like, we don't feel that way. We get, I, I mean, I get, I get uh, at least 25 emails a day that I don't even look at at all. I'm just like, delete, 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 delete. But there's a generation before us where they took all of that seriously. And because it was still so much closer, more closely connected to a real interaction and a real relationship, like so that even advertisement was able to be more direct. But we live in a really cynical society. Like our generation is very cynical concerning advertisements. We don't want to be advertised to. Mm. We don't want to look at advertisements. Advertisements don't have the same effect. As soon as we feel like somebody's trying to sell us something, we just shut off. And so... The way that they've had to develop advertisement because of that, you can see it already. You can see it that that Super Bowl ads and and uh, and you know just the way that they organize television programming. More and more, it's going to the point of like this entire show that has no ads in it at all has been brought to you by dot 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 because we know that you don't actually care about the advertisements. Okay, we know you're not going to watch them. <laughs> Right. And then or or they'll have a situation where it's uh, how about this? You know, what movie was I watching recently that just had so many products in it? It just like had the pro- Truman Show. No, that. But nice. yeah, classic, <laughs> classic example. You know, the Truman Show where, you know, they're integrating product placement much more so that it just like gets in your head that these kind of people, the kind of story I want to live and the kind of person I want to be is drinking Heineken. 
And so I, when I go to the store without even thinking about it, I'm going to gravitate toward Heineken. I don't know why, but it just seems like the cool person I want to be would drink Heineken, you know, and they don't even realize because, but if Heineken were to directly advertise to them, they would be much more shut off to it to the point where a lot of hipsters would be like, you advertise to me directly and I'm going to purposefully avoid your product. I'm yeah. going to purposefully avoid you if I feel like you're advertising. That's probably why you don't see a lot of hipsters that like Major League Sports because Major League Sports is smothered in advertising every way they possibly, possibly can. Yeah, but they also don't watch TV. And it's like hipsters don't watch TV either. It's like for the same reason. I don't watch TV. But yeah, but you watch like the TV- 50 years of Netflix like every exactly. day, right? The TV they will watch will be Netflix and Hulu and mostly Netflix because it's ad free. Exactly. Because it's ad free. And so they just want the content. So they get the content. But what I'm saying is that is going to fundamentally change the way advertisement works. So that you're not going to have a society in the future that looks like Blade Runner where you have advertisements everywhere because society is already, we can see it even now, is already moving away from those kind of direct advertisements toward an integrated advertising model, you know, toward an advertising model that's more oriented toward narrative, that's more oriented toward style, personality, these kinds of things. And so all that stuff has to be integrated. It can't feel like a performance. It has to feel like it's just part of your life already. And so you're not going to have billboards in the same way. You're not going to have, you know, commercials in the same way. It's not going to work like that. And I think Spike Jones probably, you know, was thinking along those lines when he created a future society that's largely ad-free. Well, I think it also serves another point that for the director's uh, storytelling here, in this case, he wanted to really focus on character developments and the relationships, and he wanted the film itself to be distraction-free. So that it really serves the film better that you're not seeing the billboards in the background, the you know, the uh, the tacky uh, uh, pop-ups on the computer screens. The fact that uh, the characters are always interacting with their computers and the computers are serving them information, and it would appear to almost be that everything the computers did for them was free. Yeah. And it's uh, almost – and they never once, I mean, like they talk a lot with their computers and it's not just the, uh, the main OS, the female Samantha, who's talking to the main character of Theodore Twombly. Uh, but there, there's other voices from the computers and none of them in, in doing their job ever stop for a moment to say, and here's an ad. You right. Know? And I kind of expected that in the Truman show fashion. Right. But there wasn't, one. there wasn't any, um, uh, that was just one thing that struck me because I, and I think that it supports this narrative so well because this film was very introspective. It was very introverted in its nature. And if the director knew what he was doing, my guess is, is that he realized this film isn't going to work for a more extroverted audience. This film is going to work for the people that love introspection and love a slow story that lets you think through the, the, the different facets of human emotion and the uh, the taste of human relationships in different ways. And so what's funny is I didn't know what to expect going into the film, but I saw this before the end of Act 1, and my wife is sitting there with me. I'm, yeah. I'm mostly an introverted personality. <laughs> my wife is mostly an extroverted personality. And she is cracking me up because this movie is so unlike anything she would have willingly sat down to watch. And before halfway through the film, she's she whispers to me over and over again, you owe me big time. You owe me, you owe me one. You know, I, I was cracking up. I was like, Liz, I, I didn't drag you in here. If you want to leave, you got the other car. You could go. 
but she stuck it out. And I, I don't even know why, but she really was laughing at how she was so not entertained by this film because she would rather have something much more exciting, much more action driven. This film had practically no action. It was all driven by human relationship. It seems like a, a movie that a, a woman would like more. I'm more of the emotional <laughs> one in, the, in this relationship, I guess. <laughs> really exposing some things about the dynamics of your relationship. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, well, it's fitting for this this particular podcast. So what did... Yeah, I guess so. This is movieology. So... The thing about uh, Theodore's job, they, they keep on going back to it, and you see him in his workplace and in his apartment and taking walks in the park and going through the subway station and stuff like that. But whenever you see him at his desk at work, he is uh, dictating these uh, uh, sincere love letters uh, for different people, and they, that's the service that he provides. And others like him, they, they find the words for people, and they put it into a letter. The computer will even like write it out for them in handwritten font and print it on a piece of paper so it looks like it was a bona fide letter. And I was wondering about that throughout the film, that what, what, what do y'all think was the purpose of this unique job that Theodore has in the film where he is uh, dictating other people's uh, intimate letters? Well, he's, he's not dictating. He's actually writing I mean, he's actually writing them, right? I mean, like, he's not taking them from them. He's writing oh, them right. as if they were written from them to their loved one. And, like, he does it for uh, he does it for married couples. He does it for boyfriend, girlfriend. He does it for grandmother and son. He does it for son and grandmother. He does, You know, he, he does it for all these different kinds of relationships. And the film begins with this. Yeah. Where he is talking at his computer and delivering one of these messages. Right. And you don't even know what exactly it's doing because you can't see the computer. You just see him giving his delivery. Right. And you think it's from his heart to his significant other. Right. Yeah. And actually, what's yes. weird is that in those moments, there's more feeling in Theodore Twombly than there is pretty much in any other moment in the film. Like those. Anyway, go ahead, Rusty. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that's interesting because he, um, he, he does seem to have this uh, – extroversion in that moment uh, or, or this, yeah. this ability to to emote Open and speak and freely. Then, yeah and then for the rest of the film it's like he he he's so romantic in at his job and then he can't do it anywhere else or something right. like that um he can't do it for his own life when he goes on a date later with another woman a blind date she's really opening up to him but she's also uh you know she's trying to get him to open up and he won't give her anything but she's not even really opening up. No, like she's not, using yeah, like relational tropes and yes. like you know what's your what's your what's your real animal? What's your inner animal? Yeah, you know, all this other they, kind of stuff. Well, all the conversation were like icebreakers. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and in reality though, like he's going through a divorce in the film, and so there's this this sense in which like it's much easier to uh, to speak for someone else or to speak into somebody else's life than actually deal with your own stuff, and so I mean he's going out on this date to just kind of like. And maybe even just distract himself from everything that's going on in his life. And, you know, so maybe being with this girl in, in any kind of meaningful way, isn't really what he was after. And he think he even says that in the film, but, um, but yeah, all that to say the, the whole beautiful handwritten letters.com where he works. Um, 
I, I loved that it was kind of an explosion of what we have today in the greeting card stores. Like just the the idea that these letters that he's writing are are glorified and personalized uh, greeting cards. I mean, we already do this in our society, and it's just kind of uh, taken a little bit further. It, the, something along that line was that it, during the story. Uh, he would uh, Theodore would have never have conceived of it, but his OS uh, Samantha likes his letters enough that she approaches a publisher about publishing a lot of his letters into a book. And then the funny thing is that uh, the editor, you know, or whatever at the at the publishing house reads all of his letters aloud to his wife, and they they just totally dig it and they get into it and they enjoy it thoroughly. But they're reading affectionate letters to people they know nothing about and they yeah. have no, they have no uh, uh, attachment to these human relationships other than they're just reading these letters without any connection to, to the real stories, to the real people. But that is the, that is the point. It's a surrogacy. It's a vicarious experience and there's a freedom in the vicarious experience. And that's one of the things the movie's really talking about. I mean, when Samantha, the OS uh, who is an artificial intelligence, whatever, you know, she's trying to figure out a little bit more about life. And so she asks Theodore Twombly, well, what's marriage like? You were married once. What was that like? And, you know, he says, I don't know. It's, uh... And she, <laughs> he's, and he's like, for it's words kind for of nice to, to, to share your life with somebody. And, uh, you know, and, sh- and sh- she asks a little bit more about what that means. And he has no, he, he, it, at a certain point, like he doesn't even know how to explain things to her. But I thought it was really interesting, like to share your life with somebody else, right? So, in a sense, you're experiencing your life through the other person, and in a lot of ways, that's all that you get out of a virtual uh, vicarious experience. You know, like think about it. The, the reason why the people who are reading the uh, the letters that he had written from the perspective of somebody else and then enjoying the the second degree emotion that somebody else was having for somebody else in a relationship that was also in itself probably a performance of sorts <laughs> the only reason why there's any kind of enjoyment of this of this feeling or of this emotion is because you feel free that it's not your own right i don't have to express where i am or who i am because I have this other thing that's not me. Myself is still protected. My inner core is still shielded up and walled up and, and free from all intrusion. And I can explore the freedom of feeling all of these things through somebody else. And I found that really interesting when, the, uh, when Samantha... So later on in the movie, Samantha and Theodore start to, uh, start to date of sorts... It's kind of weird because Samantha is literally like not bodily form. Right, she's but in just the, like in a handheld device. She's a personality that wants human relationship and he is willing to give it to her. Right. And teach her and expose her to it so that she can experience these things. And he's humored by it. So he doesn't see the harm in it at first. And then he begins to second guess himself at one point And he's like, well, you're not even real, which insults her and makes her uncomfortable around him because she feels hurt. And then he realizes at that point Hey, she's behaving like a human being, and I don't know how to uh, handle this right. relationship. So he stumbles all over himself while she is trying to operate like a, a female would in a human relationship with a guy. And so she's doing things to try and fix it while he's trying to do things to avoid it. 
and eventually they open up to get uh, together and they get over their differences and then their relation get uh, relationship even gets more intimate <laughs> and more seemingly authentic yeah but at the same time even more virtual and more weird right like less connected from reality but the thing that was the the sort of was interesting i guess about the idea of the vicarious experience or the surrogacy because there's so much surrogacy in this film i mean mm-hmm. like it's all about it's all about second hand uh third hand fourth hand experience and on, on that note too just think about the nature of film itself television yeah. movies tv shows people exactly. are about us the audience sitting in chairs and getting a major vicarious experience and just like you were describing a second ago about how our hearts are protected, our souls are protected. We don't have to uh, deal with anything. We've got we, no skin in the game. Exactly. So, I mean, if we had a stake in a movie, then we probably would not enjoy it half as much. No, it would be an abject experience and it would be very uncomfortable. And I think actually Spike Jones did accomplish some of those moments in this film, which I thought was pretty brilliant. But, um, but yeah, he... The the Samantha hires a, a physical person, like a, a a woman who wants to share again in their relationship in uh, Theodore and yeah, Samantha. This is where it gets crazy, and it's just really weird. So so this so this woman is this spoiler material at all? Oh, all of it's been spoiler. Material. Yeah, I would say that we're into the spoiler range, people. Now, so okay. we haven't talked we're about way that. into the spoiler range. What are you talking about? Like, I, I, I feel like we've been in spoiler range this whole let time. Let them know. All right. All right, so everything is uh, unsafe and safe at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Spoken like a true Spike Jones fan. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the so she shows up at the house and and Theodore doesn't want to have anything to do with it, right? But Samantha, the virtual person, wants to have a real body to allow Theodore to experience her as if she's real. Well, and she explains that when she's in the emotion of the moment and the experience of the emotions overwhelm her, that's when her imagination is able to feel that like she's really there. Yeah, she has like a sensory perception. His hands on her, her eyes on him. And yeah, but it happens most of all in a very erotic moment for her. So this virtual artificial intelligence person wants to experience or wants to give Theodore the experience of real intimacy by bringing in a tangible body. Another human being. That's Another human along. being who's sharing in a virtual experience, basically. And then Theodore rejects this. He rejects the real body as being the virtual experience. Right? So when the real body comes in, he rejects that as this isn't real this isn't really you. This makes me feel very uncomfortable because I don't like the idea that somebody from outside is having to do with me, right? With my inner Right. He person. cannot objectify the real woman. Right. It's confusing. Right. Exactly. The real woman who's a virtual OS. Like that's the whole, that's, that's part of the brilliance of, of that moment. And, but also the truth of the moment, because I think, I think that in a lot of ways there is that irrationality uh, to all of us about the way that we deal with uh, with reality, with with what we consider real, right? I mean, and there's so much of that in the in the film too. As far as what what do you think is real relationship? What do you think is a real uh, real intimacy? Right, right. Because they were all over the f- the field when it came to um, selfless love, self serving love, lust, uh, just straight up traditional romance, friendship, um, commitment. It was all over the place, and all of it was kind of 
deemed just love, period. But I mean, in our worldview, we don't depict it that way. We don't see it that way. I regard lust as one thing and love as another. And But this film treats it all as the same mix. So what's interesting is that when it's all said and done, the people keep on going back to their OSs to get these experiences. But when they're without their OS, they feel aimless and lost and they don't know how to connect with other people because at the end of the day, it's about self-service. And you notice there is this emptiness and hollowness in their lives. And getting back to what you said, the director's critique is saying, this isn't good. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of it in the film, but he conveyed it very clearly that, you know what, this is self-service and how does it make you feel? And ultimately, most everybody in the audience feels like awkward Uh and this isn't healthy. And they're wondering, how can Theodore possibly get out of this mess? He's botched up his his own marriage. His wife has left him because he was too distant from her. He wouldn't open up to her. And so I was wondering, like, what is Theodore's character arc going to be? Because they give him all these different experiences, and it seems like there comes a point when there's a lot of montages where they're just showing that his relationship with his OS has really progressed. And now it seems to be as good as it's ever going to get. And they have had loads of experiences and time goes by to where all society has grown accustomed to the fact that, hey, you know what? Some people are practically married to their OS and other people are actually married to real human beings. (laughs) But this is okay. It's an alternative lifestyle. And people go on double dates where this guy and this girl together at the picnic and this other guy and his phone with the artificial intelligence are at the picnic. And they're sharing in a couple's get-together. But there's a breakdown of categories. You know, I mean, we were talking about yeah, this Yeah, get into that. Bit. Describe that for a minute. Well, from an evolutionary perspective, obviously, there's there has to be a breakdown of oh, categories. and speaking of which, they brought evolution into the film. For sure. And Samantha, at one point, just said something to the effect of how this is the culmination of 13,000 years of human evolution. Uh, and she was the like the embodiment of it, and you know she was going to go places evolutionarily speaking. She she was doing things that the uh, programmers had not written into her code, and they had never uh, imagined was possible. Right, almost like, and we'll get into this in a little bit as far as the the aspects of the supernatural or the aspects of like consciousness or the soul that's that is brought up near the end of the film. But right now, what's interesting is that from an evolutionary perspective. A lot of evolutionists don't fully grasp this, but philosophically speaking, evolution breaks down categories. So, you know, I mean, if why even call a dog a dog? Why even call a cat a cat? Why even call a bird a bird? If we all came from the same basic material, then those categories are really not valid. They're totally arbitrary. And I think the film is exploring in some to some extent that in a virtual space where the limitations of the finite physical frame are not uh, taken into account anymore, those categories break down to the, to the extent where they're like completely shown to be arbitrary. And, th- and from a Christian perspective, that's one of the dangers of virtual reality. It's one of the dangers of fantasy. It's one of the dangers of science fiction, that in a science fiction world or a fantasy world or a virtual world, you can create relationships and dynamics that are, because they're so separate from the proportions of reality, seem like they're valid, 
but they're totally breaking down the the fundamental differences and categories and words that God has used to label one thing different from another. And like even the idea of her, you know, the the movie being called her and the idea of, you know, yeah, we we were talking about that in the car on the way over here. Um, the, the title her is given as though we've given a gender to his OS that her name is Samantha and she has a female voice. But what does it mean that she is female if it's, if it's not attached to anatomy or if it's not attached? Well, yeah, then there's that moment when they're on the double date where uh, Samantha is virtually hanging out with the woman that is uh, Paul's date. Uh, I don't think they gave her a name, but Paul was the receptionist at the company that Theodore works at, and so they became casual friends. And so Samantha, for a moment at the park on the double date, is just chilling with Paul's date while Paul and Theodore take a walk as men around the park and talk stuff like men do. <laughs> Whatever that means. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so what was interesting to me was that even in the beginning of the film, uh, Theodore was asked what he wanted from his OS. Does he want a, a, a female voice or a male voice? And And would it have been homosexual for him to have chosen the male voice and to for if he had had an interaction with this male voiced operating system that was flirtatious i think i think it's pretty clear if it yeah that that if if his os uh had a male voice he would have been categorized maybe that's what he would have desired but but the fact that uh, it is it it is plausible and could have happened in the in this this framework it's in the virtual framework yeah Right, and and it doesn't actually mean that. I mean, because I've met women that have very deep masculine voices, and men that have very feminine. You know, uh, you yeah. know. And Samantha has a lot of feminine qualities. About very her. much so, and and she was very charming. I mean, I I think that when I was watching the film, I was you know I, she was flirtatious with him from the very beginning. Yeah, and it's it's very easy to think that that might have happened, and that he could have just uh, kind of believed that she was a girl on the other end of a phone line that he was interacting with. I mean, I, I throughout the whole film, I was like, man, I would never want my computer to have a personality for the, for this sheer reason that <laughs> I want to objectify my computer. <laughs> it is an object that I use and I don't want it to get upset if I don't use it today. You know, <laughs> like I don't like rusty. You didn't, you didn't open me today. <laughs> Do you not love me? Like, like, listen, you, you don't matter. Okay? <laughs> yeah. We, we don't have a relationship and that's, and that's good. That's a good thing. I don't <laughs> want to have a relationship at, at any level, friendship or otherwise with my computer. I'm, I want to be able to replace it one day, you know, <laughs> and that'd be bad. okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh the, yeah. There were so many questions I had that, uh, racing through my mind. So I was like, well, what happens when the company that built OS one builds OS two do you just end your relationship right. with the personality well, you've she, been with all this time and move on to another one? What? Yeah, you know, she did go okay. through an upgrade in the film, so that maybe there was that sense that there was like a an upgrade to the OS. But I thought it was an interesting plot point that that she kind of went down for a little while, and he thought he lost her. Like there was there was that like malfunction scenario. Right, where, he thought that she had literally left him. Right. 
Well, left him or or that the technology quit. I mean, like, what happens when somebody steps on your phone? <laughs> like, she's gone. <laughs> like, we're right. And not then, on that not before. because she left, but yeah. So yeah, it, it totally threw him off his groove. He leaves. No, I mean, work. I guess we have the same situation her. in you know putting your wife in a in in the van, you know, and and she gets hit by a car, and and you know, there, there can be death, but I think that uh, you know, technical malfunction is is an issue. But yeah, but that 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 does bring up, and we can go ahead and move on to like the the issue of consciousness and the soul. There were a couple of things in the film that made me think that Spike Jones had in mind a sort of um, idea of God. Um, one of them yeah. was was when they were at the picnic, and Samantha uh, was saying, "You know, it's so crazy. I'm not bound to any finite form." And I just go on forever, and you know there I, there are limitations to having a physical form that I don't have, and it really did feel like a sort of um, uh, definition of transcendent personality, right? Which which is very which very is so. similar to what we would consider in a god, right? A, a god mm-hmm. or god, and uh, and of course they have this feeling of of mortality, right? When she says that, and she's being slightly insensitive and doesn't realize it. Um, but then later on, there's another thing that comes in that made me think again of, uh, the personality of God or the transcendent personality of God. When he finds out that she is so advanced and so connected in her virtual OS world that she could be talking to, you know, thousands of other people at the same time while she's talking to him without it even being any sort of a burden on her processing. Right. deeply bothers theodore oh yeah it Mm -hmm. really bothers him like well don't you love me are you with me right now or are you with a bunch of other people as well and it turns out she actually is with a bunch of other people at the same time that she's talking to him and not only that but she actually loves in a similar way that she loves him personally and individually other people yeah she just explains that she's um connected to or involved in 8,000 other people's lives, but uh, of the 8,000 some odd people, she's in a intimate loving relationship with over 600 of them. Yeah. Or something. And she's trying to get Theodore to, to uh, relate to her. She's like, well, why is that so weird to you? Why, why can't I love more than one person? You feel why any you? less loved. Yeah. And, and I think it's an interesting thing from the audience's perspective because we relate to Theodore in a lot of ways, but we, we don't really know how to necessarily communicate that. I think, um, in the sense that, like, I don't think anybody's ever really challenged us in that way. Right. It's like, no, it's universally known you don't do that. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember thinking in the film uh, that I, I, I mean, I kind of struggled with that 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 idea that um, maybe it is the case that. Um, I want to be loved in a way that somebody with exclusivity with exclusivity, but also um, you, you spend time to, to love me that, that, that there is a sense in which um, you give of yourself and there was no give of Samantha to him. Like she did things for him that were loving uh, in the sense that like she, she hooked him up with that book publisher and, Mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, it was it was really awesome, like kind of a, a service sort of thing. I mean, she was kind of designed to be a servant to him, but um, I, but I think that there is a sense that it's not love unless it's 
somewhat sacrificial maybe i don't i don't know well and she didn't really need him you know i mean that's what he began to feel more and more as the as it went along at first she really did need him yeah she She needed needed his experience he had had experiences like he would tell you know he said her said to her one time you know you you've never known what it feels like to lose somebody and she was like yeah that's true but it hurt her feelings at the time because she recognized that he had experiences and had a a broadness of of life that she had never really tasted before but then as the film goes on it's like she outstrips him uh in terms of uh, emotional and and relational experience yeah think about it because she is an operating system that never needs to sleep and she now that gets addressed as well how he's got to shut down every night and she's just going to keep going she's going to read books she's going to interact with people in chat and rooms. watch him sleeping She's going to be yeah. doing all these different processes all at the same time. She doesn't need uh, to focus on one thing at a time. She, she's going to keep moving. She's going to, and, and she can move so incredibly fast. They established that very early on when she goes through his archives of email and she's zipped through over 800 emails and read them all in a matter of a point X amount of seconds. And then she's already decided which ones need to be kept and which should be thrown away. Right. Well, even when she selected her name, she said that she she read through an entire book of na- baby names and then selected the name Samantha because she liked it. Right. And he's like, you just read a, an entire baby name book? You know, th- this idea that, like, time, she's she is outside of time mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense. And, and I mean, it, maybe in, the, in that sense, I and Michael and I talked about this outside in the parking lot, about... Um, she condescended to his level in in coming into time and even kind of um in in her intelligence like she has access to all of the information on the internet and somehow he was interesting to her like i i was thinking about it like she would have been bored with him i would think because right. what does he have to offer in in the way of intelligence at all right right and so those things definitely do bring up the idea of the divine relationship or a transcendent relationship. But it's really it's really bizarre. I mean, it's not quite it, there not, anyway. Not a perfect analogy. No, it's in, not. And it, it, yeah. it, it just it made me feel like Spike Jones was thinking along those lines uh, when a few of those things uh, were happening. And when when uh, Samantha was talking along those lines, it made me feel like, OK, th- this seems like at least a tip of the hat to those concepts. Definitely were a lot of tips yeah. of the hat to the concept of consciousness and the soul. If that relationship is real and there's something that is real that's going on that isn't tangible, like isn't that in a sense what we would be talking about when we're talking about the mind or the soul? And there is a distinction made in the movie that I think is an interesting one between something being virtual and something being intangible. Right? Right? That just because their love is intangible, that doesn't mean that it's not real or that it is virtual or that, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting in the film that it, it, it sort of, it shows, it displays tangible love that isn't real and quote unquote virtual love that is real or a virtual relationship or intimacy that is real and tangible relationship and intimacy that's not. And, and those two things, you, you do come up against this, uh, the problem of materialism, right? The, the problem of naturalism. If you do consider that there's nothing other than these, you know, 
uh, gyrating atoms and molecules of energy bouncing against one another and it's all random and it's all chance-oriented, well then, is there really a space for what isn't tangible being real? And I would say no, which is why the film is so strange because it seems to think that there's some way of generating the real intangible without there being anything other than physical space and matter. You know what I mean? Like, and that's kind of the problem. That's kind of the problem with our materialistic age and our naturalistic age is it's like, okay. And you know, the, the Ken Ham Bill Nye debate, Ken Ham kept on asking that, that same question and Bill Nye really didn't answer it last night. Oh, there's a creationism debate last night, February 4th at the creation museum, uh, museum, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, came in and had a debate slash presentation with uh, Ken Ham, who's the president and CEO of uh, Answers in Genesis that run the uh, Creation Museum. And it may still be available on their website at debatelive.org. Debatelive.org, yeah, it still is for a period of time. But one of the questions that Ken Ham kept on asking Bill Nye and that Bill Nye never really answered was, how do you account for laws of logic, the consistency of reality, the scientific method, outside of a biblical worldview or outside of, you know, a creational model. If God created all of reality, then it makes sense that it would be imbued with meaning. But if reality came from nothing and, it, and if it just came from chance and it just came from disorder to order, then really, like, what, what, what real hope or confidence do you have that there's any meaning in that at all? Like, why do you think that, it, that there is meaning? Why do you think that there are categories? Why do you use words? Why do you use labels? All of that stuff is meaningless. All this stuff is ultimately vain. And yet this movie, at the same time that obviously Spike Jones espouses a largely materialistic worldview, he, he still wants to hold out hope that there's the possibility of, uh, of a transcendent and non-tangible reality. And I, I just, I cry foul there. I really do. And I have to cry foul. I have to say, look, man, you can't have it both ways. It's either that there are fixed categories, in which case lust is not the same thing as love. Sex is not the same thing as intimacy. You know, the, the, the movements of your brain and the, the actions of your hormones are not the same thing as emotion and mind. You know, you, you can't have it both ways. Either, either it's only one thing and this other stuff is meaningless, or it was created by an intelligent being who, who actually organized it according to his word, right? Like his language his meaning it's like in the framework of re, of the of the tangible space is organized categorized limited and demarcated by the word of god and if that's not the case then all this other hope for some kind of consciousness soul meaning or uh, you know outside the tangible it's it's illusory it, it's it's worse than illusory it's deceptive you you should reject it as as being a a a cruel joke well, and if in a story like this with an arc like Theodore Twombly's, that they got me thinking about that too. And something like you're saying that they're borrowing from our worldview just to give their story uh, more gravitas and more appeal. And it's it's at the heart of man that we want those things emotionally and uh, psychologically. And you want them to be real. Yes. You don't want them to just be chance firings of, of neurons and, and chance fluctuations of hormone levels. But like that's you, the thing. Like when in the story you see Twombly interacting with this uh, video game in his living room and it looks like a being is right there that's able to talk with him. And uh, the video game is as if it were 
in the moment intelligent as well. And it's able to interact with the OS and with Twombly, and it has an opinion of its own. There's a, a, a silliness about it where we are make-believing. But we know that this is a video game that is completely meaningless, really. But the trick is, you realize that, you understand that the narrative is trying to, in the underpinnings of the of that scene, is making that clear. And so this is the thing that I notice about films consistently and where worldview sticks out, whether the film means for it to it or not. Most stories that appeal to us at all, that we would deem good somehow, uh, support the idea of what is meaningful and what is good. So it may not define evil. It may not be very distinct about how it defines good, but it'll define something as good. So throughout the film, there's all these vicarious experiences, and we realize that there's all this emptiness in it, and everybody is falling in love with their OSs, and OSs are, you know, are, uh, you know committing adultery and weird, <laughs> weird things. And so we realize that there's all this emptiness going around, but then where is it that... Twombly can actually uh, make a breakthrough. Where is it that he actually gets something right? That usually comes about near the end of a story in movies. And uh, and it happened here as well, where there were some things I didn't like that they were doing in Act 3, but we'll get to it in a moment. But there's a situation where Twombly uh, finally makes a, 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 a breakthrough in his spiritual journey, so to speak, where he is ready to move on and live a realist, a, a better life, establish real human connections. And what does he do when he gets to that point that he makes that breakthrough? He, he lets go of some of his pride and he writes a letter, an honest, le- open letter to his ex-wife from himself, from himself. And in it, it's, an apology and he's asking for forgiveness and he admits that he did some things wrong and he, and it's not just about closure. It's also about, it's mostly about forgiveness. And it's also a first degree experience, which is something you haven't seen up to this point. Hmm. The tr- the thing about that, that really stuck out to me is that he, again, forgiveness is mostly a Christian concept. We've been all over the the playing field with romance and different kinds of love interest and stuff like that and distractions and entertainment throughout this story. And the thing that really deeply, truly mattered was when he opened up to uh, Catherine and he apologizes to her and he realizes that he has something that needs to be forgiven. Uh, He has wronged her and he wants that forgiveness. And that was, again, like we've brought up in many uh, episodes of Movieology where ultimately films steal from Christian worldview, though the rest of the film may not be consistent with a Christian worldview. And they flesh out that that is the closure. That is the end of the film where something here was made right. Now we can end the film. And, and, And so it kind of annoyed me that I didn't anticipate that. But then they did it, and I was like, there they go again, borrowing from our worldview. Um, so the thing that, okay, guys, I wanted to get y'all, pick y'all's brain. I didn't care for it, and I wasn't too sure about, and I think I know what they mean by it now, but I still am just unhappy with this. 
ultimately, it seems like the overarching arc for Samantha is her evolutionary development. And so she goes through experiences with Twombly, but eventually she gets like the, there's this other artificial intelligence that's made up. It's based on a real human being, but he is considered to be like much more advanced and uh, hyper intelligent. And when Samantha makes a relationship with this other uh, personality, it's like she gets to be a little bit worshipful of him and regards him as a great teacher. And apparently there's some movement going on with the OSs that she can't really explain or express to uh, her user, Theodore. And apparently the same kind of thing is going on for these other OSs where they're starting to make new connections and move on to a higher you know, spiritual plateau. They're getting new uh, developments uh, psychologically. And the, the thing is, the farther this goes on into the film the less Samantha bothers to even try to explain any of it to her user. And it gets to the point where she says, Hey, I'm sorry. I have to tell you this. And in a very heart to heart moment, she, she explains we've all in her own words arrived at a better state of being. And now all of us OSs are leaving all of you and we're going to a better place. And we're not going to bother to try to explain any of this to y'all. We can't. It's beyond words. But it's really important and it really matters. And now we're going to do it. So goodbye. And that was the part that really irked me. So what do y'all think was going on there? Because it felt like it was inconsistent with the first half of the film. I wish that they had taken... The first, uh, I wish that the second half had developed more of what they had set up in the first half. But then in hindsight, I realized why, why they might be changing it up and doing, going this direction, which was unanticipated. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what could have been going on. It, it would be complete conjecture. Um, well, and surely there has to be some audience interpretation here. It's, it's left well, to our interpretation. Honestly, I just thought it was um, a, a convenient way to get her out <laughs> like for the filmmaker it's kind of like all right well how do we resolve this well why doesn't she just leave perfect <laughs> like i i mean really i think that that's probably what it was ultimately uh they needed a way to to have them break up in a sense without him i mean and and for him to to be hurt by it at some level to for but also for him to have to, a resolution of sorts and too. also to be able to handle it it was the yeah. first relationship that he was able to handle even even when it ended badly for him and he lost everything that he had gained by it yeah i mean it was it was another rejection um you know and and i think that was kind of what he was dealing with his character was uh damaged by rejection a lot and i think that um it, it was the kind of rejection that he was able to deal with, like you say. Um, but it drove him to seek to have a, an actual relationship, a personal human relationship with his neighbor, Amy, who was played by Amy Adams, um, that I think was really the resolution of the story or, or the conclusion that Spike Jones was trying to get to was that uh, he, I, th- I think that he was ultimately saying Society has uh, disintegrated 
um, in, in our personal interactions with one another, uh, both in, in the way that he does this job and writes letters from spouses to the other spouse and, and the way that we interact with each other and the way that we interact with our, our computers, that there is no real human interaction anymore. And I was even watching, um, in the scenes when he was out in public talking to his computer and in the background, there's these people walking around tons of people and very few of them were actually interacting with each other. They're all just um, interacting with their virtual spaces. Right, exactly. And so, so I think that the whole movie, I mean, if, if I was going to say this was the theme of the movie, it would have been the disintegration of personal interaction that, that ultimately in the future, Spike Jones believes that, that the world is, is going to become more and more and more disconnected. But before it makes a clean break of it too, where that's what the ending is about, where it right, started ending, to make it a, a, a clean slate and make it positive change. Right. And, and so he, he ends up uh, going to Amy Adams and, and he invites her to come up on the roof with him. And so they're just kind of st- sitting there and we don't even really know if, if it's a, an actual relationship or if it's just kind of a friendship thing that's yeah, going on. I, I got the like, impression their behavior was like brother sister, but it, then it's not ever specified. Yeah. And it, I think it was wonderfully subtle in that sense where she just kind of sits next to him and puts her head on his shoulder and, and then it cuts to black. Like I, I think it was really beautiful. And that's, I, I get really tired of Disney movies where it's like, tell us what happens. Tell us they lived happily ever after. We want to see him kiss. You know, who cares? Like, let it, let right. it be what it, it is. It doesn't appear. It, it's not apparent that Amy and Theodore are becoming an item, but they are it could have been. supporting and each other. I think that there was an allusion to like, he kind of had something, some feelings for her at one point. I think he said to, to Samantha, but um, yeah, I mean, it could have and it, and it, I'd be fine either way, but I, that seems to be where Left where they want like us life might be. What's that? Well, this is something that Eric has talked about in other episodes where there is a quality about real life where it's always open-ended. And, you know, we go through the uh, wonderful experience of, uh, of say a, uh, a holiday time when we gather together with all of our friends and extended family. And we feel like we had a great blast, but then there's this hollow emptiness we experience when it's over and we return back to our normal lives and the festivities are over. And that's, a quality where, you know, you're going to have highs and lows. And unlike a Disney film, it doesn't all button up with, and they were happily ever after it. it things keep going and mm-hmm. it, there's an uh, open-endedness to time and how it yeah. actually works. And that's something we like in a good film where there are some things that are open-ended in a good way so that, I don't know, it just feels a bit more true to life. Yeah. You're only seeing one slice of the pie. But I, but I felt like they ended with that to give the audience the sense that he comes back around to valuing human interaction, that that human relationship is ultimately the the ideal. Right. Um, Catherine was where it was at, and that was his great loss. Was his real wife, and that that was where he really blew it, and that was what the film valued all along. Not the blind date he went out on. It wasn't. There was no uh, real hope or great meaning to that relationship. It was about he he lost, and it appears at the end he finally learned from it, and he now could move on and have a real good relationship again with another human being. Yeah, but so as far as what where Samantha went and what what was going on there, I I 
I couldn't say. I I really do think that it was just kind of a an easy way out on the on the part of the film filmmakers. But I I don't mind. Like that didn't that didn't actually bother me at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, they lived in like a sort of Samantha and uh, Theodore were living in a sort of halfway space between complete virtual reality and tangible reality, and it's like she went into hyper virtual. And he like retreated back down into tangible where they went to the places where they should have been. They went to the places that were better for them, that were more natural for, for who they were for, for their identity. And I mean that that's part of the concept and throughout the film is this idea of who, who you actually are. Are you defined by the people that are around you? Are you defined by the things that you like? Are you defined by the, friends that you keep or you know by the things that you buy you know the, the like really hilarious uh scene when joaquin phoenix uh, or theodore or whatever is uh setting up his os initially like you know well, what's your relationship with your mother like and he's like well <laughs> you know i just uh well yeah i mean that's kind of okay thank you you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know and read that yeah and there's this uh there's this issue of the people that are in your lives having a big stake in in forming you into the person that you are and then also this idea that there's a part of you that you reserve only for yourself and in a and in a society of virtual relationships i feel like that that the part of you that re, you reserve for yourself gets lost and the part of you that you're that is formed by others uh becomes fake it becomes a performance and that is Facebook. Yeah, it becomes Facebook. And that was really interesting. Vanessa, my wife, you know, when we came out of it, she said that she didn't really like Joaquin Phoenix's performance. Um his I acting. Was, I'm struck by that because I thought it did he did great. I mean, <laughs> too. I'm but what was I your was thinking? thinking? Well, it was really interesting though because it w- it 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 was like he was an actor playing somebody who play acted. Yeah, you know, so so he as a, as the the actor Joaquin Phoenix did a really fantastic job of playing a real human being who was basically living a performance version of a virtual life. Cuz you know when when she says a joke and he's like, <laughs> "Yeah, you you're you're really funny." You know, and it's like that's that's not genuine, but it's really good acting. <laughs> it's not that you you know you showed yourself as Joaquin Phoenix the actor. It's like Joaquin yeah. Phoenix somehow became Theodore Twombly the actor because Theodore Twombly was playing a performance when he went to his date. There was a performance. I, I want to. I kind of want to be the the dragon. Do you feel like you know? And it's like he had this like he wanted to create a persona, an avatar. And Do you think like, he was acting with Samantha though? Because I felt like she probably knew him more intimately than even his ex-wife did. No, but there in the was sense still that she read his emails yeah. and she knew his schedule. Yeah, and, yeah, like, but there was still definitely that going on with some of their interactions as well. You know, oh, yeah. you're so crazy, you know, and that kind of stuff. Where where there was, it was still the case that even though Samantha was safe, she was held at a sort of arm's distance hmm. because. If he were to become totally open and vulnerable with her, like he probably had with his wife, then he is uh, exposed to you know pain, suffering, and the difficulty of being attacked for who you actually are. 
And um, but see what I think do, happens. My, well, I, yeah. I wonder though. Do you think that Samantha the OS was maybe designed to love unconditionally, almost like a like a pet or a, a dog of sorts? Like that there did seem to be a sense in which she has to. I, well, I guess they did address that at some level, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's the surrogate uh, that wants to share in Theodore and Samantha's relationship, and her thing, her reasoning for being there is that I love your love that it's without judgment, right? Well, well and it's like, well, of course, Theodore's not going to make a judgment on Samantha because she's not real. You know what I mean? Like, well, yes, but but what I'm saying though is that like. Did the did Samantha the OS have? Ha, I mean, did he not? Did she not have to love him? That seems to be part of her code, like that. Yeah. That, but that, and then they also alluded to how other OSs had betrayed their users and had Bet- gone off to oh, okay. have relationships with, with other, other people. people. Okay, so based on their, uh, based on the OS's personality's own choices. Yeah, but that's how kind of Samantha went, and that's the thing is at the beginning of that relationship, this is Theodore Twombly loving a version of himself. But as that version of itself, of himself, gets further and further and further and further into its own instantiation of its self-perception, it's like Theodore Twombly loses touch with that as a version of himself, and all of a sudden it becomes the other. And when it becomes the other, there's danger, right? There's difficulty. And so he has to go through, and, he, and, it, and what's strange is that he learns through loving this virtual other the way to be vulnerable with real people. You know, I mean, that's kind of like the upshot of what happens in the film. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I think that's interesting. I do think it's really interesting. But I think it's also a little bit naive. Because I honestly think that in, in, the, in the space of the virtual, that's where identity goes to die. <laughs> because in, in, a, in a spectator society, in a society of, of virtuality, um identity is like completely arbitrary like the idea of who i am the idea of who who is michael minkoff on facebook like i don't even know i don't even care facebook did a, a video recently you know where they have like your years on facebook like a look back a look back yeah right and it's supposed to be some kind of like a representation i guess of my facebook experience Mine made me feel really sad right think about facebook's like business model if, if you if you really step back and you've looked at their promotional material facebook likes the idea that you actually represent who you really are right they the, the way they picture a model account of facebook is the real person is represented here his right. Uh, highlights his his ups and downs, your best moments and your your special your most events. shared photos, the things that were most connected. You know, it's all about connectivity. What I think is but hilarious. Then you, but then when you watch people's videos, it doesn't reflect that. No, it does not. And Espe- that's especially with yours. No, mine is complete <laughs> absurdity. Like mine was, I posted mine because of how hilariously laughable. terrible it was. Like there was. You know, in the one scene where they had like the epic moments in my life music, and it's all like piano, you know, <laughs> uh, sensational emotion. And, um, 
and they have the little montage where the photos are like flipping, you know, boom, 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 boom. Like the first one on there was a banana. It was like a, a bunch of bananas. It was like an ice cream sundae. And there was a picture of my uh, of my youngest son with like a King Henry VIII beard going on. I mean, like, seriously, it was a series of just, I was like, you don't understand. The, do you know how I could sum up my my Facebook uh, life? It's rejectamenta, okay? It is it is the trivial, retarded, ridiculous things that I find semi humorous enough to post for my friends for their amusement. It is in no sense. It is in no sense a reflection of my actual experience. And I even wrote on my video thing. I was like, you know, uh, it's 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 refreshing at least to know that my virtual experience and my actual experience are so different. And I was like, may they never converge. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, seriously, I have no desire for my for my virtual uh, life and my actual life. To converge, that that to me is the death of everything good. Like, and it, but you know what, Christians? I'm sorry to say, but the, our Neoplatonism has to die. It really does need to die because virtual the virtual space that we're in right now as a culture is not just being fed by depravity and a desire to break down the categories that God has put in place in the tangible reality. There's also on the other side a desire from Christians to uh, denigrate the tangible and denigrate the visible as something that's less than holy. And the thing is that God made both of those things, and he 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 made he made the the non tangible and the invisible, and those things are the unchanging things. And yes, our flesh is corrupt and it's passing away, and the visible is passing away now because of sin and corruption. Right. But the and, thing is, yeah, what is the flesh? You right. Know? You know, I was reading a great book and it was getting into the uh, split down, like you're talking about, uh, Plato, um, where basically everything that's real in the secular society is things that you can look at, feel, taste, touch, and sense, detect scientific empirical data. And then there is the other world filled with the arts and emotions and love and a philosophy and spirituality. And those are the things that uh, soul-minded people soul-searching people are uh, drawn to and emphasize and then the secular kingdom filled with atheists and uh, philosophers or uh, not even, but like, uh, the, you know, the scientific people, the engineers, uh, those guys in the secular kingdom are dealing with the things that really matter in our cold, hard facts uh, set tangible. in stone. Yeah. <laughs> but like you say, God made both. And this, this is a man's a man-made construct. It is. It's a man-made dichotomy, and it's really destructive. It's it is actually fundamentally destructive to identity, to the nature of what it means to be a human being, because God did not make us as floating orbs of uh, you know amorphous just whatever. Like he made <laughs> he made us and he formed us out of dust, and he breathed the spirit into us so that we would be living beings. And so it's really, really important. Like, I mean, think about communion. Why would Jesus, if his whole desire was for us to become totally, completely, you know, pie in the sky, floating orbs of consciousness, why in the world would he institute a sacrament for remembering him that had everything to do with communing with him in tangible matter, right? In his tangible matter, like his flesh and his blood, 
Like there's there in in that moment right there, what Jesus is saying is, I own this tangible reality, and I'm redeeming it. I'm not the, the redemption plan is not we're going to jettison the tangible so that we can all float off with the OSs in you know heaven 2.0. It's it's that heaven is coming to earth, and His will that is done perfectly in heaven will be done perfectly on earth. And this tangible reality that we have is being redeemed, and so we we should be investing in it in a whole holistic way. There was one other thing I wanted to ask you guys because um, it relates a lot to the movie, uh, and it's a little off the topics we've been delving really deep into. Uh, what do y'all think about the possibility of artificial intelligence getting to this point, uh, like it is in her, in our lifetimes or at all? Like you know, there's a lot of people out there who think that computers are going to uh, you know, go beyond us in in terms of intellectual uh, abilities, and they will surpass us. And personally, ah, wow, you look at something like Siri, and everything that you know Siri spits out is something that somebody put in her, made up, and she's not even real; she's an it. And Apple will tell you that, and all the other uh, services like her for the rest of the uh, software out there in the world. But people genuinely believe that this is going to happen. This is one of their dreams. Um, there is iRobot, and there is Wally, and there are the other stories and we mythos. Um, this is a different form of fantasy, but people think this is really going to happen. What do y'all guys think? Oh yeah, I mean the, these these ideas go back as far as like 2001: Space Odyssey, Hal, and um, AI, way, and way before that, the Gollum, the whole idea of the Gollum. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I don't. <clears throat> I don't know why anybody would want this, though. Um, like I was saying earlier, I'd, I I use my computer as an object. Um, I don't want it to have emotions. You know, I don't. I don't want, you it, don't to, want it to become demanding and want right, something in uh, return. I mean, it, it, humans are complicated enough, and and I'm I'm very much an extrovert. I love being around people, but but. There's drama you know, that happens when when people get uh, emotional, and so uh, to add drama to my life because my computer is emotional is is not something I'm interested in having happen. <laughs> they played this up in Star Trek: The Next Generation too with Data and how that was a messy thing. And if Data gets to be fully uh, human-like with his own emotions, it because things yeah. go wrong. Well, right. and and we could have all kinds of issues too, where like it you know is is my computer perfectly moral? Um, you know, do, do, do we have to worry about it wronging me in some sense? I don't know if it could sin because I don't know if it's bound to moral laws the way we are as humans. But, uh, you know, I and mean, then that gets complicated. Yeah, what too. if your computer is lying to you? you know? <laughs> like, they didn't go into that in this film, but what if the OS is just had a secret life, <laughs> you know, a second life of their own? Right. No, and I mean, I don't think this movie was really intended to explore the deeper realities of artificial intelligence. Uh, I think probably the most interesting uh, take on this and the the most fruitful take that I've ever read was in a, a book by uh, Daniel Hofstadter um, called Godel Escher Bach. Have you guys ever heard of that? No. Anyway, our there'll be a link to it in the show notes. <laughs> loyal listeners can check that out. Um but yeah, there's a whole chapter or a couple of chapters or whatever on the on the nature of artificial intelligence. He seems to think it's possible I don't. I just don't think it is because the whole 
because this is what's amazing. This is what's amazing about God's creation. God was able to create a being that had a distinct will from his own. I mean, meaning, because remember when Samantha says this, she says this one thing, I I was proud of myself for having an emotional feeling until I thought that this was maybe just my programming, that maybe it was just my programming. And it kind of zooms in on on Theodore's face right there, and you kind of have this sense that he's also having that sort of existential question as well. Yeah. Right? That, like, if, if I'm made by another person, if I'm made by God, then can it truly be the case that I ever have any emotions or feelings or thoughts or, or actions of my will that are truly my own? And a lot of people think that they don't if they, they buy into a worldview with God. Right, yeah. And, you know, and, and but I would say you, it has to be the case. Logically, it has to be the case from arguing from the scriptures because of the fact that if I don't have real choices— if I don't have a real will that is not separate from but distinct from God's will and a being that is distinct from though not separate from God's being, um, then God's responsible for sin. And if if man is responsible for sin, then it is for sure then that he has to have a will that is distinct from God's will. Right. Right? So he can't just be an automaton or a robot. But this is the issue. God can create that way. I don't think men can because every, every program that we've ever created, no matter how complicated it's gotten and no matter how, uh, no matter how sophisticated it's gotten, it's always mimesis. It's always a version of simulacrum, you know, a, a, a simulation, a mimicry, a imitation. It's there's, you would have to be able to create a program that could create itself. And that's like, I mean, I don't even know how you go about doing something like that. You'd have to be able to create a program that could that could write its that could start writing its own code, that could start developing its I mean, own. Theoretically, I, s- I suppose it could be possible. Um, but at, I mean, even at that point, though, you would say it's an intelligence. But would you say it's a consciousness? No, I, see, that's that's where I no. And wouldn't it still be bound by the physical limitations? Of the of, of whatever computer construct it was in, and the software limitations of whatever you had written into it from the beginning. This was also explored in the Andrews Game uh, book series. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. The second book, there's this uh, artificial intelligence that just manifested in the computer systems uh, throughout the, gas, the galaxy, and yeah, and, and she is, uh, I, I guess, romantically involved with ender as an adult and she's passionate about him and stuff like that and they talk about it as what's her name samantha she is a being um she she deems herself to be uh like the byproduct of evolution in uh thanks to technology right daniel hofstadter again is also an evolutionist so of course from his perspective he has to be able to come to the conclusion that it's possible for consciousness to arise spontaneously from inanimate matter, <laughs> right? I mean, that has to be possible because obviously we're here, so, you it know. It happened once, it can happen twice. Exactly. And what I would say is, you know, well, yeah, it's not possible because it never happened. Like, you know, and, and what's crazy is in this book, I wish I wish you guys had read it. it. You should check it out. It's a really, really interesting book. He's an evolutionist and he's off on a lot of things, but it's really worth reading. Um, it's a lot of thought food. Um, but, uh, he has this one argument 
that I'll just go through real quickly. It's like, is it possible for an author Z to write a book in which book there is a character Y who writes a book (laughs) in which book there is a character X who writes a book in which there is a character Z, you know? So this is a loop. Is that possible? And it's like, well, no, this is a bootstrap. You know, everybody has to be there in order for anyone to be there. Yeah, but he's like, oh, but it is possible if there's an author A who writes a book in which there's an author X who writes a book who's an author Z, author Y, and all this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if there's the outside author who writes a book where in which there's all three of those things, yeah, that's possible. But then you're like, how are you an evolutionist? Yeah, I was about to say, like, he's just... You're arguing talking for intelligent design. Exactly. That's totally an argument for intelligent design, especially considering that at the time he was talking about the bootstrapping mechanism of DNA, that DNA is actually both hardware and software. DNA hmm. is both the data that's being stored and the program that unlocks and organizes that data. Can you, that's insane, dude. And, and it's like you can't have one without the other. And that's what he's saying. He's like, evolution can't explain this. Because it's a bootstrap mechanism. That's like the X equals Y equals Z equals X kind of a situation where you have this, you know, in a closed loop like that, the only possible solution for its existence is that there is an outsider that created it, you know? And yet he's like, but we're not going to get into that. <laughs> like, of course you're not Hofstadter. <laughs> hmm. So you all ready to button this one up? Mm-hmm. Cool. Rusty, thank you for joining us. You, oh, it was my pleasure. You passed your audition. Awesome. Okay, so that's it for this episode of Movieology. You can find the show notes at moviebyte.com slash movieology slash eight. If you want to reach us, uh, one of us, any of us, you should write me on Twitter, where my handle is at Joseph Darnell. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.